Well, it is very good to be here with you on uh, this rainy Sunday. Uh, thanks also, uh, I'll echo what Christy said, thanks to Graham and Abby for uh, joining in the worship team this morning. Great to have you guys back. Uh, we're coming to uh, the last week of a 10-week uh, teaching series that we've done over the past couple months. So we've called the series, This We Believe. We've gone through uh, 10 key doctrines, uh, 10 key beliefs uh, that are central uh, to us as a church. Um, if you don't know, our church is part of a larger network of churches, uh, the Evangelical Free Church of America. There's about 1,500 nationwide, and uh, these 10 beliefs uh, form our statement of faith. Uh, all free churches hold these beliefs in common. Now, we, we differ on other uh, more secondary items. Churches will look very different depending on their context and their culture. But these 10 beliefs, we, we hold together. Um, I actually just had the privilege uh, two weeks ago of going out to our uh, national conference uh, out in Los Angeles, where guess what? It was sunny all week. How about that? I came back and felt like I moved to Seattle. But uh, it was great being there, and uh, I really appreciated the time interacting with other ministry leaders around the country. And uh, it, it's always encouraging to get together with people um, who are kind of pulling in the same direction. And so I was very appreciative of that time. Well, today we come to our last uh, statement of belief, Article 10, and it's the belief uh, in our response and eternal destiny. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to have us read this together. After we read it together, I'm going to invite you to stand, and then I'm going to read a scripture. Uh, and I will read that, and you can just listen, all right? But we'll read this part all together. So why don't you, why don't you join me? We believe that God commands everyone, everywhere, to believe the gospel by turning to him in repentance and receiving the Lord Jesus Christ. We believe that God will raise the dead bodily and judge the world, assigning the unbeliever to condemnation and eternal conscious punishment and the believer to eternal blessedness and joy with the Lord in the new heaven and new earth. To the praise of his glorious grace, amen. Will you stand with me? And I'm going to read a, a teaching of Jesus from Matthew chapter 25. After I finish reading, uh, I'll say the phrase, the word of the Lord, and I invite you all to respond, thanks be to God, and then I'll pray, okay? When the Son of Man comes in His glory, and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne. Before Him will be gathered all the nations, and He will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, come you who are blessed by the father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me in. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you a drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, truly, I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these my brothers, you did it to me. Then he will say to those on his left, depart from me. You cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you did not welcome me. 
naked and you did not clothe me, sick and in prison and you did not receive, did not visit me. Then they also will answer saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them saying, truly, I say to you, as you did not do it to one of these, the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you uh, that you speak words that are true to us, uh, even when they're hard to hear. We thank you that you love us enough uh, to tell us uh, how you've made this life to be, how you call us to live, and the opportunity we have in you, uh, Lord, to stand righteous before you uh, for now and forever. So God, I pray this morning you would bless the teaching of your word, give us ears to hear, and hearts that are soft to your truth. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Go ahead and have a seat. Well, as I begin a, a somewhat heavy topic this morning, um, I'll begin with a fictional story, maybe a somewhat corny fictional story. Um, a Minnesota couple decided to go to Florida uh, to thaw out during a particularly icy winter. Uh, they planned to stay at the same hotel where they had spent their honeymoon 20 years earlier. Uh, because of their hectic travel schedules, it was difficult for the couple to coordinate their travel plans. So the husband left Minnesota and flew to Florida on Thursday while his wife planned to fly down the following day. The husband checked into his hotel room and decided to send an email to his wife. Uh, however, he accidentally left out one letter from her email address and then sent the email without realizing his error. Meanwhile, somewhere in Houston, uh, a widow had just returned home from her husband's funeral. And the widow decided to check her email, expecting condolence messages from family and friends. But after reading her first email, she screamed and then fainted. The widow's son rushed into the room and found his mother on the floor, and then he saw the computer screen, which read, Subject, I've arrived. To my loving wife. And the message being, I know you're surprised to hear from me. I've just arrived and I've been checked in. I've seen that everything has been prepared and will be prepared for you tomorrow. Looking forward to seeing you. Hope your journey is uneventful. P.S. Sure is hot down here. All right. Well, there is much speculation, confusion, and misinformation about the eternal destiny of human beings. And so I thought for this morning, what our main focus would be is just getting from Jesus' mouth what he has to say about our eternal destiny. So we're going to look primarily at Matthew 25 and then some other scriptures as well. What does Jesus teach us about eternal destiny? Um, first, we see in this passage in Matthew 25 that Jesus will come again in glory to judge the world. Jesus will come again in glory to judge the world. Uh, we read in verse 31, when the Son of Man comes in glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Uh, Brendan taught about this last week, that uh, all history is moving towards a culmination in the return of Jesus Christ. That just as Jesus came once to our world as a baby, he will come again uh, as a glorious king. And the scriptures are pretty clear here that he will come quite tangibly. I mean, the first coming was very humble. 
Uh, people did not expect the Messiah to come as a baby born to a poor family. And the second time, it will not be subtle in this way. It will be glorious with all the angels. And he will come and it says he will sit on a throne. What that means is he comes and he'll assume his rightful place as ruler of the universe. And on, from this throne, he will judge the world. Now, that sounds like heavy and negative to us. I mean, in our culture today, the idea of God's judgment um, does not sit well with almost anybody, church people included. Uh, but the scriptures are actually very positive about this idea of the coming judgment. We read one of those verses at the beginning of our service this morning in uh, Psalm 96, verses 10 through 13. The psalm says, Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Yes, the world is established, it shall never be moved. He will judge the peoples with equity. Let the heavens be glad and let the earth rejoice. Let the sea roar and all that fills it. Let the fields exult and everything in it. Then shall all the trees of the forest sing for joy before the Lord. For he comes, for he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in faithfulness. Do you hear the, the sense of joy and anticipation about the coming of the king and the judgment that he would bring? And that's because everything will be set right when the king comes and judges everything justly. See, right now, we are locked in perpetual arguments in our world about what is right and what is wrong. I mean, everyone is saying how life should be lived. We just have different opinions about what that should is. Uh, Nations ought to act this way. People ought to behave in this way. Things like, it is wrong for the strong to oppress the weak. Well, the question is, says who? Says who? And if there isn't an ultimate standard and a person who is enforcing that standard, we will forever be arguing about it. But the scripture says one day all arguments will be settled when the king comes and settles all matters. That it is a good thing when the king comes and judges. Uh, even creation itself rejoices. The seas roar, uh, the fields cheer, the trees break out in song. That, that creation itself longs for the king to come and to judge the world. So Jesus will return. And when he comes, secondly, all people will be gathered to him. It says that all people will be before him, gathered, all the nations. Um, Think about that, like all peoples, all ethnicities, all languages, all countries, everyone gathered together around the throne. And it's not just all people now living. The scriptures tell us it's the living and the dead. Uh, this is why our statement of faith talks about that God will raise the dead bodily and judge the world. So the idea of like you only live once uh, doesn't really play out here. Actually, we live once, and then we all are raised again and stand before the throne for judgment, which changes your attitude toward this life. If there's going to be a final reckoning, it matters deeply how we live this life. Uh, John 5, 28-29, Andrew read this in, the, serve, in the, the worship portion, where Jesus said, Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out those who have done good to the resurrection of life, those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. The idea that all people, all people 
will be raised and gathered to the throne for judgment. And at this judgment, what will happen? Well, we're told here that people will be separated into two groups. Two groups. Uh, Matthew 25, verses 32 to 33. He will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. Now, this is a stark reality that there are only two groups when all is said and done. Of all the people ever to have lived, two groups, sheep and goats. So let's consider these two groups. Uh, first, the sheep uh, whose eternal destiny is heaven. Uh, in verse 34, it says, Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you. A couple key words we need, to, we need to pay attention to in this verse. The first word, come. Jesus says, come. The king will respond to those on his right, come. And what this tells us is that heaven, heaven is the presence of the king. That we are invited into the life of God. That Jesus is inviting all those who have placed faith in him into his full presence. Now, if you're um, at all uh, doctrinally astute, you'll know that the scriptures teach that God is everywhere. He is omnipresent. So what's the big deal about being invited into the presence of God? Well, while God is everywhere, he is not everywhere equally. Uh, think about the Old Testament, where they would, uh, in the temple, there was the Holy of Holies, where though God was everywhere, his presence, his manifest presence, was experienced to a far greater degree, a degree to which if you went in there in an unworthy manner, you would die. That God's presence, as God's presence was experienced fully there. And the promise of eternity is that those who have put their faith in Jesus will be in the very presence of God from all eternity. And God himself is the source of all life and all love. So we will be drawn into the heart of life, the heart of love for all eternity. The full presence of God is heaven. Jesus says, come. The second word that the king says at the judgment is inherit. So the first is come, the second is inherit. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you. I am so thankful for this word. What this means is we will not be bored in eternity. Uh, if, I'm to, if I'm to be honest, when I was a young guy, I did not want Jesus to come back too soon. There was a lot in life I wanted to experience before he came back. And I was a little bit afraid if he came back too soon, I was going to miss out on a lot. But this word inherit tells us that we are going to be participating, actively participating, in, in, in more than we could ever fathom. Um, the kingdom prepared, this is the language of Genesis, kind of uh, Genesis 2.0. When God made human beings, he placed Adam and Eve in the garden, and he placed them there to rule and to have dominion and to fill the earth. And so they were to actively govern and cultivate and steward and enjoy this creation that God had made. When he says, inherit the kingdom prepared for you, he's saying, uh, this plan is back on track and even better. That I'm giving to you uh, this kingdom, this life, this right to rule with me for all eternity. So there will be governance, cultivation, an active life for all eternity. What this means is there will be work in heaven. 
but there will not be the curse. Imagine working and things didn't go wrong. I mean, imagine a building project and your plans never failed. Uh, if work never had an enemy, work's actually a wonderful thing. You're participating in meaning and in purpose. You're seeing your labors being fulfilled. This is eternity. Come, inherit. Our future couldn't be better in Christ Jesus. But there's not only one group, there's two groups, right? There's the sheep and then there's the goats. And this is the hard part of the message today. Uh, I honestly prefer not to talk about this. I just would. I'd like to skip over it and kind of give you a nice wrap-up and, and be done for the morning. But it is unloving to remain silent. I mean, imagine if you had information that could significantly affect a person's well-being in the future and you chose not to say it just because the message was hard. That would actually be unloving, not loving. See, Jesus is loving. He loves us enough to tell us things that we don't want to hear because it's for our good. And so he not only tells us about the sheep, he tells us about the goats. So what do we learn here about the goats? The goats, whose eternal destiny is hell. Matthew 5, 25, 41, Jesus says to this group, depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. Now, hell was not an uncommon topic for Jesus. Uh, he actually spoke about it quite a bit, and he used many different images to talk about it. He talked about fire, he talked about outer darkness, uh, he talked about uh, destruction, weeping, gnashing of teeth, very visceral images, all describing this eternal destiny apart from God. But what's important for us to understand today in this passage are two things in particular, two things from what the king says to the goats. First, we learn that hell is separation from God's presence. Notice the word there, the first word he says, depart from me. To the sheep, he said, come. To the goats, he says, depart. So come to my presence, depart from my presence. And if God is the source of all life and all love, there could be nothing more terrifying than eternal separation from the source of life and love. Hell is separation from the presence of God. But secondly, it's not just depart from, there's also a to. He says, into the fires prepared for the devil and his angels. Hell is also punishment. But notice here another word. It's the word prepared. Prepared. Now to the sheep, the king had said, inherit the kingdom prepared for you. To the goats, he says, into the fire, prepared for the devil. So heaven is prepared for God's people. Hell is prepared for the devil. And in this, we get something of God's heart. God loves people and is preparing an eternal destiny to share with people. He is not willing that any should perish. But this does not mean that some will not perish. But it is not his desire that people would be separated in hell. He is preparing actively heaven for people. Hell has been prepared for the devil and his angels. It is the height of a tragedy that people would align with the devil and his purposes and reject the offer of God's presence forever. 
But it is important that we see God's heart in this, what He is actively preparing. But this does lead us to a question that I think most rational people ask at some point. And that is, how can a loving God deny people heaven and send people to hell? If you haven't asked that question, you probably haven't thought deeply enough about this, or, or if you haven't asked the question, somebody around you is. I mean, how can a loving God do this? We sang all these wonderful songs this morning about God's love coming like rain, about the Father's arms being opened wide to welcome people in. How does that square with the doctrine of hell? Two thoughts on this. First, let's remember how the Bible describes what heaven and hell actually are, okay? Remember we said that heaven is the full presence of God and hell is separation from God. Now, I think for most people, heaven is not thought of as the full presence of God. I think for most people, heaven is thought of as their future personal fantasy playground full of their consumeristic dreams. And Jesus is just the gatekeeper. So in eternity, I will finally get to spend my life fishing like I wanted to. I'll get the lake house I always wanted. Uh, there'll be no, uh, no one to trouble me. It's the fulfillment of my personal consumeristic fantasies. And frankly, Jesus is not an active part of it. He's just the gatekeeper. That isn't heaven. That's not what the Bible presents heaven as being. Heaven is the full presence of God. Now, I'm going to read a, a few different quotes from an author and a philosopher named Dallas Willard today. And the first of these quotes is about this point where Dallas Willard says, I am thoroughly convinced that God will let everyone into heaven who, in his considered opinion, can stand it. But standing it may prove to be a more difficult matter than those who take their view of heaven from popular movies or popular preaching may think. The fires in heaven may be hotter than those in the other place. It might be helpful to think occasionally of how exactly I would be glad to be in heaven should I make it. Will it be like a nice, air-conditioned luxury hotel with unlimited room service and spectacular amenities for eternity? I often wonder how happy and useful some of the fearful, bitter, lust-ridden, hate-filled Christians I have seen involved in church or family or neighborhood or political battles would be if they were forced to live forever in the unrestrained fullness of the reality of God and with multitudes of beings really like Him. You see... The heaven that people are upset about being denied doesn't exist. The heaven that actually exists would be quite undesirable to sinful people. That's the first thing we must remember is what heaven actually is. But the second thing we must remember is how the scriptures say that God punishes sin. Uh, Romans chapter 1 is this masterful book of the uh, uh, chapter of the Bible where Paul is articulating how God's anger how God's just response to human sin is working itself out. And in Romans 1, 24 to 25, Paul writes this. He says, Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. See, what Paul is saying, first of all, is what's gone wrong in life. He says all humanity, in one, to one degree or another, 
is worshiping the things that God has made rather than God himself. We think that life is primarily about created things, about uh, our um, well, gaining more, more money, more resources, more pleasure. And we almost worship these things rather than the one who has given us all the good things. And as we continue to persist in doing this, we become more and more confused about what life is actually about. And God, again and again, tries to turn us from this foolish way of living. He gives us His Word, He gives us His law, He gives us people to teach us, and we persist in trying to make life about created things. So God eventually says, okay, have it your way. He says God gave them up to the desires of their heart. God says, you want to live that way? Try it out. See, God's ultimate punishment is to give us what we foolishly insist upon. That's His ultimate punishment. It's a heart that refuses to live life connected to God. He says, okay. Uh, Second Dallas Willard quote uh, about this idea. He says, if on earth you try to avoid God, what makes you think you'd want to be with God for eternity? In heaven, God will be unavoidable. Truly, God doesn't want anyone to perish. He wants everyone to be saved. But there are people who want nothing to do with God, so He lets them have their way. You see, it would be unloving for God to force people into His heaven who don't want to be with Him. God lets people have their way forever. That's what hell is, is people getting their way forever, which is a really hard and stark reality. Uh, Friends, heaven and hell are real, but not in the way we often hear presented. Hell is not a sulfur pit guarded by the devil with a pitchfork. It is a final destiny, the eternal outcome of a soul turned inward upon itself, rejecting the grace and the love of God which should make all of us say, how should we respond now? Uh, What should we do now that we would respond to the love, the grace of God, which is part of what our statement of faith is about? What is the right response to the gospel of Jesus Christ? Now, when we go back to Matthew 25, the, the teaching of Jesus I read at the beginning, about Jesus separating the sheep from the goats, at first read, when we go through that, it sure sounds like Jesus is saying that Those who do kind deeds to the poor and the marginalized gain entrance into heaven. And those who do not do kind deeds toward the poor and the marginalized go to hell. But not only does that interpretation not square with the rest of the teaching of Scripture on salvation being by grace through faith, but it actually doesn't even make sense within the teaching of this story. You see, neither the sheep nor the goats in the story, were surprised by the place assigned to them by the king. They were surprised by the reason given, that they were admitted or excluded on the basis of how they responded to Jesus. It was surprising that their actions revealed what they actually believed. See, those who trust in Jesus, those who love him and follow him, become the kind of people over the course of their life who do the kind of things that Jesus described here. Those were Jesus' commands, that we would care for the the poor, that we would be concerned about the oppressed, that we would care at cost to ourselves about others. These people were following Jesus, and their deeds revealed their faith. 
See, Jesus gave a really helpful metaphor in another teaching in Matthew 7 to explain this reality. And it's the metaphor of a tree and fruit. And he said, by the fruit, you will know if the tree is healthy. So if you're walking through an orchard, maybe this fall you go apple picking, and if you see a tree with no fruit and no leaves on it, you'd say, that tree is dead. But if you see a tree in all kinds of apples hanging, lots of leaves, you say, that tree is alive. Now, the leaves and the fruit do not cause the life in the tree. They are evidence of the life in the tree. And what we see in this story is evidence of faith. These kind of deeds are evidence of a life that truly trusts in Jesus Christ. So in our statement of faith here, there were three words in particular that tell us about what it looks like to put our trust in Jesus Christ, and then naturally over time we will see our lives demonstrate this kind of fruit. So let me finish by highlighting these three words, uh, how we should respond uh, in faith to Jesus. The first word is believe. We're called to believe the gospel. And belief has two components. There's a knowledge component and there's a trust component. Um, Belief is not just a general, vague sense of belief and optimism that things will work out. Belief in the scriptures is specific. It's belief in who Jesus is and what he has done. See, to actually have faith in Jesus, we believe he is the son of God come to earth. He did live the life we should have lived. He did die in our place, taking our sin upon himself. He did rise from the dead, giving us his life and righteousness. He ascended to God and will come again. In short, we say over here, Christ has died, is risen, is coming again. That's the faith that we put our trust in. But the second element of belief is trust. You see, even the demons, we're told, know that truth. They know that reality. They just don't like it or trust in it. To have faith is to put the weight of your life into this truth about Jesus. We believe and we trust in the gospel. Second word is repent. Um, When Jesus first began uh, teaching in Mark chapter 1, we're told that he said the time is fulfilled, the kingdom is at hand. Repent and believe the good news or believe the gospel. And all that repent means is that you're walking one way, and you turn and begin to walk the other way. It's a change, a change of mind, a change of direction. And so we must recognize that we have all gone our own direction in life, trying to decide for ourselves what is right and good, and that to put our faith in Jesus is to agree that he's right about everything. We can't come to Jesus and think he's wrong about some things. And we all have areas of life where, frankly, we might think he's wrong about our money, about our sexuality, about forgiveness, But he's right about everything, and we are turning to him and learning how to live life the way he says life should be lived. There's no salvation apart from repentance. We're not saved because we repent. We repent because we're saved. We repent and turn to Jesus. And then third word, it's the word receive. Um, We're called to receive Jesus. And that is, we're not just putting our faith in a theological equation. We're putting our faith in a person. We receive Jesus. Paul said, therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. It's like when you get married. You're not only signing a contract, you're entering a relationship with a person. And to receive Jesus is to receive a life with him, to receive him, and then to learn to live life following him, to receive and to walk. Um, For the sake of time, I'm just going to... Uh, wrap up here. 
Um, every Christmas, we, we sing a song, uh, Joy to the World. You guys know that song? What's funny is, that song was not written about Christmas. It was not written about Jesus' first coming. It was written about his second coming. I thought about having the worship team play it today, but it seemed really out of season, so I, I didn't do it. But listen to the lyrics and how it applies to this. Let um, joy to the world, the Lord is come, let earth receive her king. Let every heart prepare him room, and heaven and nature sing. That's what we have the opportunity to do right now, before he comes, is we prepare him room in our hearts, in our lives now, and receive him as king. And when we do that now, what joy it is when he returns. And that's why we get this teaching from Jesus, not that we would be so scared about being goats, but that we would gladly receive him now as our king and learn to live life with him now and forever. This is the gospel. I am thankful Jesus gave it to us. The question is, have you put your faith in it? Do you believe and trust in who Jesus is and what he has done? Are you repenting of your sin? Have you received Jesus and are you learning to walk with him in life? I would love nothing more than to talk further with you about any of those questions. I know some of the people that uh, pray uh, after the service at the chalkboard would love to talk and pray with you also. But I would urge you to consider deeply uh, your answer to those questions. Um, your life now and your life forever uh, hang in the balance. They really do, according to the teaching of Jesus. I invite you now to stand with me. I'm going to close with prayer uh, and a song. Lord, we thank you uh, that you are a God uh, who comes to us and who speaks to us through your word, by your spirit. And Lord, we thank you that you say to us not only the things that we want to hear, but even the things that we don't want to hear uh, for our good. So God, I pray today you'd help us to wrestle well uh, with this difficult reality uh, about our eternal destinies. Uh, thank you, Lord, that you have prepared an eternity for us that is good beyond measure. So Lord, I pray that you'd help us to anticipate that day look forward to that day, uh, and to be uh, bold in sharing with others about that day. And Lord, I pray now uh, that you continue to help us to live life with you, for you, becoming like you. Uh, Lord, help us to, uh, to be like the people uh, in your teaching, uh, Lord, who care well for the needs of others because we've seen uh, how you've done that for us. So Lord, shape our hearts to be like yours, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.